Good morning. Whoa, that was loud. I'm a yelling pastor, so this should be interesting. Just kidding, I don't yell. Um, but for the kids, hey kids, hi kids, 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 kids. So I want to invite you guys, if you want to stay, we'd love for you to stay, because I'm really funny. Um, parents, so you're welcome to leave your kids here, but we do have classes, so if you would rather that your kids go to the classes, you guys can head out to the back in an orderly or chaotic fashion. Um, really good either way. Uh, so, yes, I am, I am genuinely excited to uh, get to join Generations. I'm going to be completely honest. Um, it's a little, um, it's different when you guest preach somewhere because you'll never see them again usually. Um, and so, like, I've been here a week, and here I am, so I kind of have to make a good influence, um, but not feel like I need to sell myself at the same time. Uh, so I just want to get you guys in my headspace there. Um, that's where I'm at. Thank you. Uh, so I actually had this conversation with my wife uh, through this week while I was uh, getting time to sit and study, and I told her, I said, babe, you want to know my favorite part about preaching in a new church? She's like, what's that, sweetie? I said, the fact that they don't know any of my lame analogies. So you guys are going to get all of my lame analogies, and then my family, because they loved me, all had a discussion about which name analogy I was going to use today. You guys will find out uh, in a little bit. Um, but yeah, so my name is Pastor John. Uh, I'm here to come along with the families uh, and the kids and kind of help disciple that. I come with my amazing family, my wife, who actually has to work most Sundays, so you won't get to see her too often, but uh, she is the backbone of everything, incredibly uh, wise. If I say anything smart, it's probably because I'm saying what she already told me. Um, we have four kids. One of them, our oldest, is up the mountain at Hume Lake as a chef, uh, working at the uh, the camp up there. Uh, and then I have my next daughter, Bella, who's at CBU, a sophomore at CBU, and she is a musician. I have my son, who's 16. His name is Jonathan. Uh, he's tall, studly, and all the kids love him. And then my youngest is 13, Gabriel, and uh, he is the perfect little brother. He'll tell you all the stories, uh, but he's a ton of fun. But we come, this is who we are. Hi, on behalf of the Detlefsons, it's a pleasure to be here with you. So now that you know who I am, let's get to it. Uh, if you have your Bibles, pull those out. We're going to be in Psalm 107 this morning. If you're going to use the Pew Bible, I believe it was page 506. I looked. Uh, but we're going to be in Psalm 107. Um, I will say it is kind of an honor. I've known Pastor Jeff for quite some time, uh, so it is really kind of exciting to get to do some ministry alongside him. Uh, I know you guys have had some stellar uh, pastors covering uh, while he was healing, uh, so there's a bit of honor to be up here with some good guys as well, uh, but that is what we're going to do. So Psalm 107, we're going to look at it uh, in two ways. We're going to see it through the lens of context meaning what's actually happening at the time, how these words actually would communicate to the original hearers, and then we're going to look at through the lens of Christ. Here's my lame analogy for you guys. How many of you guys have seen National Treasure? Yes, perfect. You know those glasses he finds at the thing? Ah, there it is, right? He sees the map. Oh, there's the map. And then he flips the next lens, and there's a whole other level of map. That's what we're doing today, guys. There's my lame analogy, but I think it's cool either way. But Psalm 107, so here's one other thing that you'll find out about me. I love to tether myself in both Testaments when I study, I like because the, the Bible is one cohesive story, so whatever it teaches me in the Old Testament, I should be able to find it in the New Testament and vice versa. So every time I do that, I like to have an Old and New Testament reading, which we'll do. So if you guys will stand for me uh, for the reading of God's Word, I'm going to read out of Psalm 107, verses 1 to 3. 
And then I'm going to read 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 9 to 12. Psalm 107, 1 to 3 reads this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered from the land, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. And then 1 Peter he writes this, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim his excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you are not people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak out against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And as the scripture says, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. Amen? You guys can be seated. All right, so let's crack this through. Psalm 107, verses 1 to 3, we have this intro. Not a funny story, I actually got my hair cut yesterday so I could look nice and good up here. And uh, oddly enough, the guy cutting my hair, newly saved, he's like, you're a pastor, no way, what are you teaching? And I said, 107. He goes, oh, so the redeemed say so. I was like, Phew. <laughs> trippy, yes, absolutely. So the redeemed would say so. Cool. But such a powerful intro here as the psalmist just kind of, here's, here's what I love oftentimes about songs and stuff is they're written with plans and purpose, right? So the first thing the psalmist wants us to do before he gets into anything is to recognize a few things, right? Our call and God's goodness, right? He says, for his steadfast love endures forever. He says, before we talk about anything, let's remember who God is. Before we talk about the strife of life, perhaps, before we start to talk about all of the glories and goodness of God, before we start talking about how he's affecting us or how we should be moving forward, he wants us to be very um, guarded and getting our minds in the right place. That we would go into this with our minds attached to the, that we would give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And I just kind of randomly clicked on on accident, actually, the definition of a couple of these words the first time. So steadfast, when I clicked on it with, with my Apple mouse, it said dutifully firm, unwavering, firmly fixed. Okay, that's cool. I was like, what's endure mean? And it says suffers patiently. Oh, that's good. I like that. To continue in the same state. And I was like, well, you know what? Since I've been clicking on these, let me see what redeemed means. And it says this, it says, compensate for the faults of something slash someone to buy back or to free from distress. Okay, that's cool. So essentially, the author is saying, before we do anything, let's give thanks to the Lord for being unwavering and his constant, patient, long-suffering that knows no end. That's a grand proclamation. He says, before we go anywhere, let's give thanks for who God is on a base. So that's kind of the, the tone that the psalmist has set for us. It says God redeems. And here's the thing. Let the redeemed say so. That's going to be a theme throughout the entire psalm. Let the redeemed say so. So a little structural setup, because I like doing this too. So if you have your, uh, if you like to write in your Bible like I do, 
Um, hopefully you write better than I do. But if you're going to see right here, verse 4, verse 10, verse 17, and verse 23, we're introduced to a group of people in distress. Different distresses, but we're introduced to four different groups of people in distress. And then the beginnings of verse 6, 13, 19, and 28, it says verbatim, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. So we see an introduction to a group of people in distress. We see them respond to this distress. The second half of those same verses, verse 6, 13, 19, and 28, it then says verbatim, and he delivered them from their distress. So we see a distressed people. We see the distressed people call out. We see God redeem them and deliver them from the distress. And then the last thing that is common, verse 8, 15, 21, and 31 will all say, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. So we're going to see four scenarios. That's the best word I could come up with it. Four scenarios of distress. We're going to meet four groups of people who found themselves in some sort of distress, and they got to a point within that distress that they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord responds by rescuing them from this distress. And so that first lens, we're going to look at it contextually, because contextually it does kind of make a little more sense. Some of them will be kind of hard for us to kind of reconcile a little bit just because culturally we're very different than they were then, but we want to look at culturally because guess what? It was written to them first, so it means something to them a little different than it will for us. So we want to look at that first, and then we're going to look through it uh, through the Christ lens, uh, because Christ is the fulfillment of the scriptures, right, the Old Testament, or it's the fullness of the scriptures. And so we're going to see how this psalm that is speaking about actual distress is actually a, a beautiful picture of our soul's distress and our battle with sin and the slavery to it and death and how Christ saves us from that. Uh, there's your spoiler alert. So we're going to meet our first group of people. Verse 4 Four to nine says, some wandered in the desert, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good Things. So the first group of people we're meeting are the wanderers. Now, culturally speaking, if you were going to travel from one city to the other, you were probably walking, and there was probably not a nice paved road that got you. And I can guarantee you there was not an AMPM that you could stop at to get ourselves a Pepsi when you were feeling a little thirsty, right? If this travel was going to take you three days to walk, you needed to bring three days' worth of supplies. And when those supplies were gone, well, so were your supplies, right? And then you were subject to weather because you didn't have air conditioning or a heater or, you know, cruise control. You didn't have any of those things like we have, right? So traveling even uh, the shortest of distances from one city to the other that would take us in a car an hour perhaps could take days. It could have made them go over mountains. And there's a good chance they made a wrong turn at the wrong rock. 
So these original hearers, I can promise you, as the psalmist is writing about wandering, they can remember a time they were following their father and they got lost. And you know, that first day of like, oh man, is this the right, where's the sun? Okay, we've got to go north, right? Whatever, whatever it is. Like, they've got their whole, okay, we're going to find our way here. That first day, it's okay. Then the second day, you're like, I don't think this is right. Then you get to that third day, and you're out of water now, and you're in the middle of the desert. Now you're really thirsty, more thirsty than you would be if you were driving because you're walking this whole way. Now you're out of food, and you can't even see the lights of a city. Distress. It says they got to the point, right, they were of so distressed, they were hungry, and they were thirsty, and their souls fainted within them, meaning they were like, that's it, I'm dead. This isn't like a, God, I'm frustrated. No, this is a point of hunger and thirst and hopelessness that says, that's it, I'm dead. That's it, I'm dead. And their response was to what? Cry out to the Lord in their trouble. And here's a beautiful thing I love about this. It says, and then who led them but God, right? It wasn't just a matter of fact that they found their way. No, the psalmist wants to make sure that everybody knows, first and foremost, if you make it, God made it for you, right? Like, first and foremost, if you find yourself to a place, right? And so here's a real practical thing for us to come around with, right? If God is indeed sovereign over all things, the moment even something as simple as travel mercies, right? Because I've driven on the freeway. It's crazy, right? Even the, the, the pure fact that I made it to where I wanted to get to should bring me to a point of proclaiming God is good. Just on the way, not even the fact that I got a flat tire, right? Like we actually went on a family vacation to the Grand Canyon, and we borrowed a friend's RV that blew a tire literally an hour and a half away from any city. It was fun. But here's the thing. We made it to the Grand Canyon at like 10 at night on wobbly tires, and all we could do was praise God for the fact that we had made it to the Grand Canyon, right? Like that was an easy moment for me to be like, oh, God is good. And actually, funny story, we actually drove down afterwards on our way home, and the guy literally said, you had maybe five miles left on these tires before all the treads flew off. Really easy moment for us to say, praise God, we made it where we made it, right? But even the small things, even the little things, the psalmist is saying, everything where you go, when you make it there, so simple things like travel mercies should bring our minds and hearts to worship. It should bring us there. Super easy application. But if we flip the narrative, right, we flip that Christ uh, lens over, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read some, I got a lot of scripture tonight, or today, guys, just so you know. We're going to be in the Bible a lot. John 6, okay, records the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. I'm sure most of you guys have read that story. Uh, so verse 2 is when we get introduced to this crowd of people following Jesus. First 9, we, we find out we meet a guy, a boy, who has five loaves and two fish, uh, like, Jesus is like, we need to feed these people, and, and they're like, it will cost thousands of dollars to feed these people, and they found this boy, and he splits the fish, and they feed 5,000, it says 5,000 men, doesn't include families, so we don't even really know the real number, a lot of people with five loaves and two fish, and there was leftovers, so he feeds them, then verse 22, we read that the crowd actually stayed at the shore, right, and woke up the next morning looking for Jesus, because they were hungry, they wanted more bread, right? So in John 
6, 35, Jesus says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. And if we actually jump to John 4, he actually calls himself the living water. These are actually terms that we use to, to say the Jesus I am statement, that I am the bread of life, right, that I am the living water. And I think it's kind of funny, but it's not funny, the fact that Jesus uses the very symbols in this psalm to say that he's the fulfillment, the wholeness of it, right? But it doesn't stop there. Because in John 14, 6, Jesus says to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is, is answering this psalm, right, without, right, without even saying it, without even saying, okay, if you guys could turn to Psalm 107, I'm going to let you know how I'm the fulfillment of Psalm 107 real quick. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and let you know that I am the bread for when you're hungry, and I am the water for when you're thirsty. And not only am I the means by which your soul shall be satisfied, I am the way upon which you will find it. The Jesus links. So where this psalmist is speaking very simply to us in our normal day-in-day life, we flip that lens and we see that Christ is saying, I lead the wandering soul to the Father. He says, I fulfill the the wandering soul with, with its nutrition and needs. He says, I am the fulfillment. It is Christ in Christ alone. And so, church, we should say it is so, is it not? It is so. That is, that is what we're, the psalmist is saying. Hey, this is who Christ is to us, right? If he's all of this, we should say it is so. Next group of people, starting in verse 10 to 16, it says, Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, They had rebelled, or sorry, for they had rebelled against the word of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. So quick context, look. Prison then, not prison now. Prison then, oftentimes, if you were in prison then, you would get no food unless you had somebody from the outside bringing it to you. There was no windows, there was no beds, it was dark, it was dank, it was wet, it was uncomfortable. And you weren't just in a cell, you were going to be slaves. That's, that is what it looks like. That is the picture of what it means for somebody to be in the darkness, in the shadow of death, prisoner, right? Full of affliction. To be, to be in that moment where, for any reason at all, your captors could beat you to death. And have, nobody would say anything to them. You have no reason to think you will ever get out because there's nothing protecting you from, from, from not having to serve a longer sentence or from ever being free. There's a very real sense of hopelessness here. And, and just so you're aware, when it comes to being under uh, other rule or prisoners or slaves, Israel as a nation 
does not go many generations where they're not experiencing it at some level. Their history, right, their history starts in Egypt where they're put under um, slavery by, by Pharaoh, right? And then we see Moses is the, is the vessel God uses to pull them out of slavery there, and then they end up wandering in the desert because they're foolish, and then they get to the promised land, and then if you start actually read the book of Judges, we're talking the next generation already is rebelling, and God is using all these other nations. He actually says it in Judges. He says, because you didn't do what I told you I was going to do, all these nations now are going to be barbs in your eyes. That's the book of Judges. So you read through the book of Judges, not a generation tends to go by that there isn't somebody alive that has experienced this hopelessness of being in the shadow of death. So contextually speaking, the original hearer would most definitely understand what it looks like. And there's another truth in here contextually. When did the people cry out but it wasn't until God put enough pressure and bowed them low enough, right? So real quick, real truth context, the pride of man is awful. The pride of man is awful, right? Oh, you can't be saying stuff like, you're going to get me hopped up up here. It's <laughs> dangerous. Okay, so... <laughs> So the pride, of, the pride of man, right? Like, like even to the point, right, that even when they were to this point of, of near death, it wasn't until they fell and they realized nobody was there to pick them up before they go, you know what? Mm. God. Yeah. And if you read the book of Judges and you could read through, through Kings and, and, and all of those things, you'll notice they never go to God and be like, Lord, we have sinned against you. No, what they go is, Lord, we hurt. Save us. Right? Let that just kind of marinate in your pride of life. So we see this, this whole contextual thing where, where Israel has this cycle, right, of being saved, rebelling, finding oppression, crying out, being saved, rebelling, finding oppression. It's this over and over thing. And the psalmist says, and every time you find freedom... It's because God did it, and all of the oppression you are experiencing is 100% God's grace. 100% God's grace. Because he knows if I left you to your own devices, you would never, ever, ever come back. So the psalmist says, even in those moments where you're in the valley of the shadow of death, my daughter actually got to go to Israel with school, and she told me this cool story about the actual valley, and I can't remember, so I can't tell it to you guys, but it's a cool story. <laughs> you should totally do some kind of like archaeological check there. It's like a, a real place, and, and, and like the way that the, the tombs were, I don't know, it was super cool, and I meant to call her, and I didn't, so I'm sorry, but... <laughs> Do some research on that. But let's flip that lens for uh, the Jesus now. Let's, let's look at Jesus here. Um, so Paul in Romans 6, pretty much the whole chapter of Romans 6, he's kind of going over this, this, this whole idea. But we're going to pick it up in verse 16. He says, Do you know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And if we jump to verse 20, he says, For 
When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He also says in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are in light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The, the New Testament uses the, um, the imagery of being a slave or a prisoner to, to sin and, and death a lot. It's, it's a very common picture. And for us, like I said, because prison and slavery is a very different thing for us here, at least within the United States, right? It's a very different thing. I think we lose the contextual thing behind that. But you're like, you're right. I was metaphorically a slave. No. No. It was not metaphorically a slave. So we were, before Christ came and brought us out, we were in a dark worthless ending in death. That was it, eternal damnation. Everything Christ paid for on the cross was awaiting our last breath. It was waiting for us. So before Christ, we should have lived a life that said, oh Lord, will there be a tomorrow because I kind of don't want there not to be because I know what's coming, right? Like That should be where we are. But it says through Christ, right, he's delivered us from this slavery. And John 8, 12, we see another Jesus I am statement. He says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so another picture, right? As the psalmist says, that we were in darkness, in the shadow of death, slaves. We see Christ say, I'm the one that saves you. I'm the one that frees you. I'm the one that brings light into darkness. And just because I want to have a little bit of fun, John 1.1, you guys know John 1.1? Okay, cool. We're going to read a little bit of John 1. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life that was the light of men The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So right out of the gate, Christ is the light that darkness cannot stop. Unstoppable light. But let's keep going, because this is fun. Verse 6, there's a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to witness, came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And here's a really cool thing, guys. You guys, do you know who John's dad was? Zechariah? Okay, cool. So Luke 1. John the Baptist has been born. Zechariah was actually mute because when he was told in the temple as he was uh, acting the high priest, when he was told, hey, you're going to have a son, he goes, <laughs> I'm old. And he said, you will be mute. Boom. Couldn't talk. The whole time his wife was pregnant. So now here comes the baby. Baby's born. And they're like, what shall his name be? Oh, his name will be John. Right, here it comes. This is what he says. In verse 76, he says, and you, child, 
will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. John was born at least three months before Jesus. So we see Zechariah prophesying that John will be the herald of the one that will be doing exactly what the psalmist writes. The light pulling people from the shadow of death. That's just cool. I just wanted to share that with you guys because it's cool. So we should say it is so, right? That we were once in darkness, but we have been brought to light. Brought into light by the light in Christ. And we must say it so. Our next, our next scenario we see, oh, man, that clock is going down. Verse 17. Some were fools through their sinful ways and became, or because of their iniquity, suffered affliction. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from his destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Cool. So what we're meeting here, we're meeting people on the brink of death. Now, death is a funny thing for me. It's not a funny thing. But it's a thing that we need to, to, to kind of talk about, right? Because death is the most guaranteed human thing in the world. And yet, it is the thing that feels the most unnatural. It is the thing, right, that we can guarantee, doesn't matter how rich you are, doesn't matter where you come from, every single one of us will taste death. It is a guaranteed, right? We're not all guaranteed to go to the ocean. We're not all guaranteed to drive a BMW, we're not all guaranteed to be as studly as this, right? We're not all guaranteed for these things. But the one thing we are guaranteed for is death. Death is a guarantee. And yet, every time we're faced with it, we don't know what to do with it. It's the most unnatural feeling. And the reason for that is because eternity has been placed into our heart, as, as Solomon writes, right? That we were never meant to taste death, that it was an effect of something. So it's counter-natural for us. And yet... And yet it is something that is the great equalizer of man, right? But we've, we meet this person that says they loathe food and drink. So I don't know, I, I don't know if you guys have had that family member, right, that, that has got to that point where they are, their bodies have just completely given up and they can no longer eat. They don't want to drink, right? They're just, they just know it's done. It's just, it's just over, right? So I can guarantee you, it just as it is contextually easy for us at that point, right, to, to see what it looks like to have somebody just on that, that moment of, of death, right? But then he says, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from the stress. It says he sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. And so there's just not, it's not just a matter of recognizing being on the brink of death, right? Like that's, that's step one of this scenario. Step one of this scenario is knowing somebody on the brink of death, 
where you think there's no way. Step two of this scenario is that person then gets healed, right? Like for us, I think the most easy thing for us to kind of correlate would be like a cancer survivor, right? When somebody's got cancer and we see their bodies just just fall apart and and you get those hard conversations where they don't know if it's going to make it, they don't know if it's taking. Every, Every time they go to a doctor's appointment, there's that uneasy feeling of, is it still there? Is it going away? Is this working? How much time do I, has it spread, right? That whole feeling. But what happens? Pretty much anybody I've ever met who has stared cancer in the face and has beat it, they identify themselves as cancer survivor. Right? That is a, that is a common thing in our culture, right? I, I survived cancer. And then they are the, the proponents, right? Okay, hello. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Okay, cool. Where was I? Do, 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 do. What's that? No mic? Okay. Done. <laughs> okay. Okay. Center, center, center. Bring it back. Oh, it's good. It's my first time. You guys are going to be like, never again, never again. Don't let him do this. Okay, cool. So, yes, the cancer survivor, right? This is their identity. They will let you know that they defeated cancer. They will be the first person at the rally to earn the money so that the cancer um, treatments can continue on, right? They, they own that. When somebody gets to that point where they have been saved from death, it is now part of their identity. I am a survivor. Now, I'm pretty sure you flipped those Christ lenses on me already, right? Yeah, that's the way you do it. Good. Mm-hmm. Well done. Cool. Sweet. So what does that mean for us? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses of sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is in the work of the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up by him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I love Ephesians, by the way. But you hear that? We were children of wrath, dead dead, no hope, no ability to accomplish anything, chasing after being slaves to sin and death. And yet, God and his glorious grace and his love, not just, here's the thing, right? 
It says, not just did he bring us from death into life, but he raised us up and seats us next to Christ. Like, it's not just a matter of like, you've been saved, now stay down there. But he says, you've been saved, come up here. And so, with the same zeal, do we say it is so, as a cancer survivor will say it is so, that they survived cancer. Do we, with the same zeal and the same statement, say, I am saved, I am because of Christ. And you guys want to know something else? John 11, another Jesus I am statement. It says, this is when Jesus is at the well with the woman. He says, Jesus tells, says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who has lives and believes in me shall never die. Another I am statement. Another moment where Christ is saying that psalm, yep, fulfillment. Fulfillment. I'm the one that brings you from death. I'm the one that brings you to life. And so are we saying it is so? Would people know, just as much as if they knew we beat cancer, would they know that we've been saved by Christ? Do we say it is so? Next group, last group. Okay. Verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the storm wind, which lifted up the waves in the sea. They mounted to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them, sorry, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. So our final scenario is a bunch of sailors at sea. And if you've read your Bible, you probably got all these other images happening of sailors at sea. We'll get to them in a minute. But here's the thing that we need to understand, okay? Culturally speaking, sailing was a normal thing. So these sailors on, on this ship, have dealt with storms, they've dealt with boat leaks, they've dealt with everything that could go wrong while on the sea, it's normal. It's what they're used to, right? It's their, go, it's their day to day. What we're experiencing here is a storm so grand that it has the sailors who live on the ocean, right? We call it sea legs, right? This is, sea leggers are walking around like they're drunk because the storm is that irate. That's the picture. Like I went on a cruise with my wife for our anniversary one time, and there's a little bit of waves. I was like, whoa. I don't like this at all. But no storm, right? It wasn't a storm. It was still sunny outside. So I can't really imagine. Like, like I've seen, you know, was that the, the deadliest catch? The Yeah, nope, I'm out. I know they make a ton of money, but I'm out. I'm out, right? Because those, you see these boats go from, like, straight up to straight down. Right? Just up and down and up and down. And here's what we know about the ocean. It will beat the boat every time. 
So this is, the, this is the scene for these sailors. In this storm, so grand, so overwhelming, it says that they're at their wit's end. Right, kind of the same scene we see with Jonah when Jonah gets on the boat and the sailors are like, what are you doing sleeping? Wake up, dude. Come on, man. Like, we're about to die right now. This is a crazy, crazy storm. But what happens? Storm stops. And not only, here's the thing, not only does God stop the storm and leave the boat there, but he says he stops the storm and gets them to their desired haven. So not only does he, does he stop the storm, but he brings them into the haven that they need to be. So contextually, this is a, this is a real thing, right? Now, here's, here's the thing. Yes, if I defined extol, could anybody define extol? I couldn't. I clicked it. Extol, extol, extol. It is to praise enthusiastically. With enthusiasm, right? Now, picture being on that ship not knowing which way is up or down, then all of a sudden it stops. What are you doing? I'm sure there's a Fortnite dance you could do, right? Something crazy. You're dancing, you're celebrating, you're crying out, how good is God? So that is the picture that they're setting for us as we go into flipping the Christ lens. You ready? Okay, cool, perfect. Matthew 8, another scene of a storm. Matthew 8, verse 23 says, And he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by waves, but he was asleep. And they woke him up, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he rose, rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? Jesus is like, okay, check it out. Psalmist, we're going to do this in real life. Now, remember, if you remember the calling of the disciples, a lot of the disciples were sailors, right? So, again, a storm, normal for them. This storm, not. And we see Jesus do exactly as the psalmist says God does, and he calms the sea. There's another story. This one's in John, John chapter 6, verse 16 to 21. It says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the Sea of Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him in the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land in which they were going. We have two stories with Jesus in a boat with sailors. One of them, he stops the storm. The next one, he immediately brings them into harbor. That's, that's cool. I don't really know how more to explain the fact that Christ is, is, is the fulfillment of everything that he's got going on here, right? Here's the thing. Sailors would go on the ocean daily, it was the way, this is where they went every day, right? So these guys are just living day-to-day -day life, find themselves in a day-to-day -day life in a very hard, scary, rough season. They call out, saved. And it's the same for us, right? Like, genuinely, nobody lives a life in a simple season. 
It just, that's just not the way things go, right? Sometimes we have great days, sometimes we have bad days. But the key here is Christ says, find your peace in me. He said, don't find your peace in the situation. Don't find your peace in, you know, Netflix. He says, find your peace in me. And I'll get you to where you need to be. So are we saying it is so? When we, when we recount our life and our seasons and all that's going on, are we saying it's so? I find my peace in this storm because of Christ. He brought me from point A to point B because of Christ. I'm alive. I once was dead because of Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of this beautiful psalm. So allow me, whoo, so close, to uh, end with the closing verses in our psalm. Verse 23 says, he turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt out on princes and makes them wander in tactless waste. But he raises up the needy out of affliction, makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. We should just sit on verse 43, right? That we would consider today, that we would consider God's steadfast love for you. That you would recall the days of wandering, perhaps recall God's faithfulness to you as a young child as he led you through Christ to find salvation. Recall the rescue from your slavery of sin and death and eternal damnation that you received in Christ. Celebrate the coming from death to life that you have been granted in Christ Jesus. Here's the thing, beloved. We must extol Christ. Yet forsake the gathering of the saints. Or sorry, do not forsake the gathering of the saints. Come together that we might, in the congregation of the saints, say it is so. For Christ finds cares for and leads the wandering spirit, rescues them from the bounds of sin, bringing them from death to life, a new life that is meant to be a living sacrifice, extolling him for his steadfast love and wondrous works for the children of men. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for who you are, the work you do for Christ and the steadfast love and your wondrous works for the children of men. Would we never forget, never, ever, ever forget where we came from? Would we, would we find ourselves in the storms of life seeking the peace that can only be found in Christ? And Lord, would we come, would we gather, would we say it is so, would we go out, would we be uh, beacons and pillars and lights that say, Christ saved me? Help us be a people who say it is so. We love you, Lord. We give all of our praise, honor, for you're the only one worthy.
We prayed in his name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So we are going to take a moment and we're going to get into...